Hello and welcome to The District Podcast. I'm Matt McDonald, US Managing Editor of The Spectator. Today, we're talking about the theme of our September print edition, Comedy in the Age of Cancellation. Joining me in dissecting this frog here at Olympic Media in Alexandria are three of our cover authors, none of whom are comedians. <laughs> we have Spectator Editor-at-Large Ben Dominich, Spectator Contributing Editor Billy McMorris, and James Kirchick, author of Secret City, The Hidden History of Gay Washington. Gentlemen, welcome. Before we start, I should check, do any of you guys know what irony is? I, I've heard of it as a concept. I thought it died after 9-11. I'm told it's meant to be a state of mind in which uh, we need to navigate this uh, new environment in which uh, people's pronouns can be A, ear, and M, according to Time magazine. Absolutely. I'm glad we cleared that up first. <laughs> My uh, kind of opening question is, it relates obviously to comedy. Jamie and uh, Ben, you both interviewed comedians for this issue. Do you think that comedians today care too much about cancel culture, too little, or the right amount? Well, it's a big question. There are some comedians who care about it a lot, including the one that I profiled, Bill Maher. And I agree with him. He's been around probably longer than anyone in this field that we write about in the magazine. I mean, well, he's the longest serving late night host. He's mm -hmm. been on for over 20 years. His contract was renewed. He'll be on at least until 2024. And I think he, uh, it's a common theme on his show is, is cancel culture, not just in the world of comedy, but in the culture at large. But I think it does matter in comedy because it's gotten violent. I mean, we have Dave Chappelle being physically assaulted on stage. I can't remember the last time that's happened in this country. In this, in, I mean, it goes back to Lenny Bruce in the 1960s, who was arrested for telling jokes in New York City. And it's not the government that's doing it anymore. Now it's the culture, mm -hmm. if you will. It's people, mobs on Twitter. It's people who feel empowered in the audience to just get up and assault a comedian, whether it's <laughs> Will Smith or just a member of the audience at the Hollywood Bowl. So I do think it's a, it's, a, it's a concern, and I think we're being deprived of something when comedians feel that they can't tell jokes. Well, Jamie, you profiled someone who's basically immune to cancellation because of his popularity, sure. because he's got FU money, yeah. because he's, been a re he's an institution. Yeah. And I think part of the question is, can you survive the cancellation mob as someone who isn't in that position, as someone who's coming up. Mm -hmm. Because what happened to Shane Gillis, uh, who I profiled, uh, is, is something really interesting. He's a guy from Mechanicsburg, Central PA, what he describes as the most boring place on earth. Um, he comes from total, like, Selena Zito-style Trump family-type, you know, situation. His sister was an opioid addict and a heroin addict. He, you know, obviously kind of navigated something that's very representative of like, this is, this is, this guy's family is basically the reason 2016 happened. And then he gets chosen to join SNL by dint of his successful performance as a club comedian and comic in New York and in Philly. And before he ever performs on the program, he gets canceled. Uh, they announce him and then it's just like immediate. Three days. I think. Yeah. And... Yeah. Lorne Michaels, you know, to 
and you know, Shane has told this story before, but but it, you know, Lauren Michaels basically says, "Hey, it's going to be okay if you can just like survive until you're on the show, because then people will see that you're like funny and they can't hate you." And Shane's response was like, "Nah, it's going to get way worse," <laughs> you know, because uh, he knew what was coming and that they were going to pour over basically every podcast, every you know, like offensive joke he'd ever done. By the way, he got canceled for a joke about like. Chinatown and and uh, about Andrew like Yang ducks hanging in the window and that kind of thing mm-hmm. that is like one of the least offensive jokes in his pantheon of offensive jokes. But I think that you look at him and you sort of say, if you're not Bill Maher, mm-hmm. can you say these kinds of things that are still hilarious but rub people the wrong way? And I don't think the answer to that is very positive at the moment. I think that you actually have to have achieved a certain level of stature to be able to survive these things. And if you, if you haven't, then they can rip your guts out. So I guess my, my, my question to the panel would be Bill Maher doesn't like cancellation now, but Bill Maher birthed this baby. Bill Maher was the one who really took comedy into the world of trying to make it politically relevant because Let's be honest, before he started his late night talk show, he was telling jokes about why Jewish cooking uh, isn't great and matzah is bad. In other words, he wasn't terribly funny. It was his political humor and the fact that he brought politics into humor that has served his shield and dagger for him for decades and now it's being used against him for the first time. So I, you know, it's it's one thing to go back and say, can't we all go back to the '90s when it was the the moral majority and Christians that are bad, and we can just joke about that and talk about how brave Muhammad Atta is. And you know, is it any surprise the revolution always eats its young, to borrow a cliche? And now Bill is retreating unto the fold of a modern libertarian right for protection. I'm not sure that's so fair. I really date this trend to John Stewart. Yeah. You know, Marr started completely incorrect in the 90s, but he was always, I mean, he was a liberal. He still is a liberal. But he, he went after everyone. Stewart, I think, really be, brought the sort of hard partisan edge. And hectoring, right? And, and this hectoring, moralizing tone to it, which Marr never has had. Because Marr, you know... Well, Mar can't do a good alien voice like John Stewart can. Whoa, Gizmo! Uh, that, that's John Stewart's whole calling card. But that—that's the other thing about John Stewart last year going on about the Wuhan lab and right. expecting a, a hero's welcome from those who actually enjoy comedy. And it's like, no, you—you you brought this yeah, about, I would agree. Yeah. and and now you want us to give you cover right. for your brand of comedy that you've used to. Well, you know, attack the, us and th- but this is also one of those examples years. where it's like the people end up sort of falling prey to the to the uh, their their own kind of um, indictments of the nature of of the way that we deal with comedy. I mean, lest we forget, it was Seth Meyers who invented the term clapter, and yet all Seth Meyers yeah. does now is clapter. Yeah. You know, and all, and same with Colbert, and same with Kimmel. All of them. They, and it's, That's so true. And, and <laughs> right thank on. you, thank you. I am both fearless and brave. No, no. <laughs> like, there's not even a tur anymore. It's just clapping. It's yeah. one hand clapping on all of these shows now. Actually, I I shouldn't say that because I don't watch any of it because it's unbearable. 
Mm-hmm. So I, I it's well, like but, but judging the, a book. I want, see, I want interviews, but not monologues, because I know there's nothing like there might be something in 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 it for me for like a late night interview of like someone in the entertainment world that I care about. But like the monologue, I know what they're gonna, I know what they're going to say every night because mm-hmm. it's just the same as what everyone is saying. It's the same as what John Stewart would have done on his Daily Show twenty yeah. years ago. The thing that just is absent from my perspective, and this is the sort of weirdness of it, is you would think that Mars' success. Being someone who is so successful at what he does that he can do a show every Friday night that dominates discussion for the next two and a half days, basically. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's unheard of in this day and age. And yet there's no inclination on the part of HBO or any of these other places to try to create something like that. It's not just more. I mean, look at Greg Gutfeld, who hosts a late night show every uh, every night, right? On Fox. Yeah. He's now dominating the late night demographic. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's getting higher ratings than the network late night shows, which is unheard of for a cable news show to be beating out the Tonight Show, the Late Show, all those and, shows. And, and, and we also doing. we also experiencing kinds of that loss of common culture, well, yeah. where and this is something that kind of goes to you know obviously you write about uh, Norm Macdonald, uh, Billy, but like the. One of the reasons that Norm became as famous as he was was because he would go on Conan and give tell these stories that all of my friends would be talking about the next day. And that was something that That's happened That's how we routinely. all learned the term crack war. I had never heard of it until I started watching Conan. But, but, but this was what the... What a ghost bit, upbringing. Yeah, exactly. But, but, but this is the... This is... What was great about Norm is, and his advice to Gillis, Mm -hmm. that Gillis recounted after Norm's death, was Norm called him up and left a voicemail and said, you know, in a war for comedy, I think the guys with jokes will win. (laughs) Um, And and Gillis was very right to take him to the woodshed and go, why why so gender exclusive? Uh, Doesn't acknowledge fluidity at all. But but the thing that made Norm such a great... comedian was that he would surprise you. He would show up on Conan and talk about crack whores uh, on the most vanilla, you know, Letterman, Leno type thing. He would start taking out his most ridiculous and offensive to the sensibilities. He got banned from Iowa. Also, the moth joke was prompted by the fact he didn't know he had to do two segments. So. Yeah, no, of course. No, but, but then you see he, he goes on to the Comedy Central roast where, you know, you're supposed to be as offensive as possible <laughs> and reads from a 1930s joke book. Because he goes, oh, being, yeah, yeah. yeah, because being offensive for offensive sake doesn't demonstrate no. any comedic talent. It just shows that you have the vocabulary of a 12-year-old. In a coarse culture, there's so, a so so he got cleaner as he went on. Oh, then there's a, and, yeah. and so I I think that is a far better model for what have I wrought just, just to than close, the Bill Maher. Uh, but just to close of, off what I was, I invented relevant comedy, and now I'm mad that people who are more committed to mm-hmm. relevance, social justice relevance, than they are to comedy are taking over comedy. But but what Omar, I will what, what I'll maintain here though just to close off what I was uh, the comment I was making before is Mar is the closest thing we have now to a shared common culture. Meaning in, in this bizarre way 
that like H- HBO. How and, many people subscribe to HBO, Ben? No, but this is the thing: twenty-five million people watch House of the Dragon. Okay, I have no and idea what that is. That's fine. <laughs> okay, but the point is that like in a in a diminishing world where you're no longer engaged with Fallon, Kimmel, Colbert, then that allows someone like Mar, who used to be kind of the you know the the counterculture, the fringe, out to there, to become yeah, kind of the a, culture. There's a dedicated team at the Daily Beast every Saturday, which is committed to pouring through his yeah. monologue the previous night and attacking him and calling him a reactionary old man. There's like two or three reporters. Who's Daily Beast still a publication, amazingly. <laughs> <laughs> How many people read the Daily Beast? <laughs> hey, my wife worked there too. I used it's to work there. I used to work there. I find that. I've only really written there once. Hard for me, but hard for me. Um, <laughs> I prefer the original Daily Beast yeah. from the Evelyn Waugh novel. I will bow to no one in terms of my worship of Tina Brown and her works. So. <laughs> yeah, the original Daily Beast was a, was a good pub, was a great public. Yeah, it really was. She so. ruined the New Yorker, though. So. Well, so just to get slightly back on track, uh, obviously, first, fight me. Obviously, firstly, <laughs> there's a roof deck right there. We can this. So, Billy, we've got to get you booked on Bill Maher so you can you can front up to him. Dude, the, this entire episode, uh, I'm attacking him so he invites me on. Uh, you should mention that I'm wearing white pants and seersuckers. So, yes, uh, yes, so he yes. knows before I'll Labor, come. Before Labor I'll come Day, dressed crucially. I want to pick up on something you said about Norm and the Saget Roast because I think it's kind of interesting and demonstrative about why he's a comedian that so many other comedians look up to, was when he told jokes that fell flat, he just kept going. It's almost like he had the confidence to be like, I know this is a good joke, and like you guys in the room may not have laughed at it, but I'm going to move on. You saw it in like his update segments in the 90s. You saw it, uh, Bob Saget wrote like as the, as the most perfect example Jeff Ross tells a anecdote on Conan's podcast where he says that he toured with Norm before he went on SNL. And when he did well, like Norm would go out and like, you know, have a drink or not, well, I don't think he drank, but like he'd go out and like do like meeting the fans. And when he bombed, he'd just go to the door and shake hands with everyone as they left. Yes, they had to see him again. Do you think that <laughs> comedy needs a, more of that in order to kind of survive and thrive in this kind of cancel, era of cancel culture? So, so do we need good guy comedians see it depends on the audience because i i remember bill burr coming onto my radar when i was in college not because he came and played my college but because he went to philadelphia and bombed and then got the crowd on his side by launching into a 12 minute attack on philadelphia and all it holds dear. It, it you was, one bridge having you one mother bridge. effing city. Yeah. You build a statue to Rocky Balboa even though Joe Frazier is from here. It's incredible. Um, so uh, one thing about Norm's entire brand of comedy, I, and I think one of the things that he picked up in, in his what turned out to be dying days, and is that he departed from you know, the outlandish anecdote brand of humor that has kind of taken over comedy and returned to the roots of comedy. And that was one of the things that was impressive. I heard the moth joke when I was in middle school. I heard the Dirty Johnny joke when I was in middle school. Norm was the only guy who was like, this could be Russian literature Mm -hmm. if I worked with it. 
he actually worked within – to listen to Norm MacDonald in the later stages of his career was no longer to listen to a guy who would say crack whore. It was to listen to a guy who would say crack whore but in the context of telling you a Nabokov story. Right. And that is a brand of comedy built off of popsicle stick humor. He embraced limits and was like, I can tell a punchline but take the listener all around the barn. And that's something that's missing in comedy. We, we have a lot of comedians today who basically feel you either, you have to be outlandish in your anecdotes, but you can't be offensive. And in that kind of limiting environment, it's actually safer to just return to a traditional form of humor, 40s, 50s type of set, stab. Yeah. Jokes. And this is I, Bert Kreischer, you know, the yeah. king of anecdote comedy. Talked about Doug's walking in on king Doug of, Stanhope. Also, one day. king of taking his shirt off. And yes. You will and, never uh, hear a pop uh, like you hear in a Bert Kreischer show when he takes his shirt off. <laughs> <laughs> but, but he talked about walking in on Doug Stanhope and finding Doug Stanhope beating his head against the wall. And he was like, what's going on? And Doug Stanhope was like, we're the funniest people in the world, right? And Bert Kreischer's like, yeah. And he goes, then why can't we write knock-knock jokes? <laughs> he was just trying to write a knock-knock joke because if he's funnier than the people who wrote knock-knock jokes 100 years ago, he should be able to write a good one. But comedians have forgotten how to actually write jokes. They can say funny things that will not be timeless. Norm was the one who was looking for a timeless Said if you know, you characterize it as plain spoken folk wisdom. Yes, that's, that's the expression. You yes, use. no, he, 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 in an age of jargon, yeah. I mean, to, to be able to turn into, <laughs> to be able to turn, maybe that makes me shallow while talking about uh, suckling from your mother's teeth mm-hmm. into a punchline, your last punchline that you'll deliver on earth is really impressive. Mm-hmm. That, that shows a level of humor that. We don't see anymore. Well, but it also, I mean, the people who are just kind of joke writers, they stand out now. I mean, there are more of them in Britain in part because you have like the whole comment show, uh, panel, like panel players, show yeah. type dynamic that you don't have here. But it's astounding the number of people who just don't, they don't actually write jokes. You know, it's it's all this observational, conversational type humor. And uh, A man spread out his legs on the bus. How far did he spread them out? So far that I couldn't sit. And that's your punchline. That's, that's what comedy is mm-hmm. produced to. Everything's in the net now. And will it be funny in 20 years? I was going to say, what's that? Is that from? Oh, I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> I think I watched the net. Uh, one thing I was curious about, Jamie, just with your profile of Bill, is how aware is he of this dynamic? Like, is he aware of the fact that he has basically become this cultural icon that has far more fans on the right now than the left? Well, he's very adamant in insisting that he is not a conservative. No, he isn't. He's a classical liberal. And, you know, he's not a I mean, probably, I'm sure a lot of the reason why Bill Billy hates him is because he's such a militant atheist. I mean, he wrote... Oh, no, it's he, because he's not funny. <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's a totally subjective opinion. Um, but he's very... That's a totally subjective <laughs> Oh, well, how militant is his atheism? He, he hasn't called for shutting down uh, Catholic schools yet, so... 
but he's actually not. that makes him a, a just a, a classical liberal atheist instead of uh, well I mean, a militant atheist does not well he's not a yeah I mean he's not he's he's a liberal yes he doesn't believe in shutting down religion or 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 you know uh, bombing churches if that's what you're saying he's mm-hmm. not he's he's not a violent atheist but he's very much not a conservative I think that, mm-hmm. that's a very strong part of his identity. But, you know, I think he does enough to, to piss everyone off that he really is sort of a party of one. Mm-hmm. A party but, of one, but supremely popular. Well... So not a party of one. Party of one in the sense that, I guess, among his peers in the business. Yeah. yeah. Uh, there's, you know... I doubt that there are many people at HBO, like, in the business side, who are actually fans of him. Really? Yeah. I don't. I, I wouldn't know, but I, I just. I, I, mean, I can tell you, having spent. Jamie's just trying to throw the sin off the, so, uh, the trail. I wouldn't. I, I, wouldn't no, I think. I think Mar actually has I, a lot of silent supporters. I, I think, think I put him who, in the same category mentally as I do, you know, sort of Chappelle with Netflix, where it's like, you know, well, maybe this, among the younger staff, yeah. probably doesn't like him. Sure, yeah. Where the, I, the, it the is staff a, is like, ah, oh, crap. Do I have to put out this thing promoting this guy who says all these things that I hate? Well, it's, it's generational, and a lot of his observations, as I point out in the piece, are generational. He's mm-hmm. complaining a lot about younger people, yeah. and their mores, and their attitudes, and the way they behave. And it's, I think, surprising for a lot of us to see young people who usually tend to be the generation that's rebelling against whatever the status quo is, they tend to be more wanting to expand the boundaries of what we can talk about, right? You look at the student movements in the 1960s, mm-hmm. right? That's what being a youth is about. It's sort of about challenging authority. But, victim of, yeah. but victimhood culture is totally at odds with that. Yes, and, and supremely not funny. Yeah. And it's really not funny to go around You're punching competing. down. You're yeah. punching down right. with that joke. Well, de- <laughs> definitely not funny, but I mean, Mark, and, and this is one of those things... It's it's not just Marr who's being accused of being a right winger. It's mm. Andrew Dice Clay. Bill it's yeah. Rob Schneider. <laughs> it's Hickory all, Dickory yeah, Doc. <laughs> all of the guys who spent the '90s, you know, trying to offend yeah. the, the moral majority, yeah. and now find that the same jokes offend their own side, and they're well, wondering why their own side because the new moral is attacking because no, the new moral majority are progressives. Yeah. But, in terms but, of their attitude, in terms of their, but they are not. Uh, but but Bill Maher is not exactly a. Uh, what Ben was alluding to earlier, he's not an up and coming guy. He is mm. the establishment. So yeah. the young people still are rebelling against mm. the establishment. It's well, just not the rebellion uh, that the establishment. I don't think Bill Maher is the establishment. Likes. If you're talking, who, who's the establishment? The New York Times, Washington Post, yeah. Academia. Yeah, yeah but we're talking about uh, comedy I've got, here. I've got I've got a challenging counterpoint for you. Uh-huh. Is the establishment not like the huge tech companies like, That's part like of Netflix who are throwing money at these guys? Netflix is, but they're standing by Chappelle. But are other large institutions standing by standing by their heterodox Netflix voices? did do a Tim Dillon special. Yeah. But really, if you look at sort of the most of the troublesome sort of middle tier of comedians, in which I would include Dillon and Andrew Schultz. And Andrew, Schultz. Andrew Schultz. Who's also yeah. gone like off that. on his own. Um, they're going off on their own. Yeah. And so Andrew, I've known Andrew for a number of years. He actually, bizarrely, he thanks me at the end of his original Netflix special. Mm. And it's, it's very weird. It's like, thanks to Joe Rogan, Sagar and Jetty, Ben Dominich. Wow. <laughs> and, and then it's a cease and desist order, Billy McMorris. That's how it was served. But, uh, it's ridiculous. Uh, but I, 
I love Andrew's humor. Mm. Like, I think he's very funny and his crowd work is excellent. I, I thought that his, but he's almost more impressive as an innovator than he is as a comedian because his choice to sort of, I'm going to build my own studio, I'm going to own it and I'm going to use it, you know, for podcasting and which was an enormous, you know, sort of benefit to him pre pandemic. But then also his independence to sort of say, you know what? These people are uncomfortable. By the way, I don't think that his deal was with Netflix. People assume that his deal oh. was with Netflix. I think it was actually with a different company run by a certain bald man. But it uh, it was very innovative. That's not narrowing it down. Yeah, but uh, very innovative of him. I think to say, hey, I'm gonna I'm gonna do the Louis C.K. thing, mm. even without having built up the kind of email list that Louis has built up over years. You know, I'm going to pull my special back, offer it for, you know, at the price of a movie effectively and have the kind of success that he did. That's so impressive. And I hope that more and more comedians have the faith in their product to do it. Because right now there's this whole diaspora of like the the podcast world, the Patreon world, the, you know, give me a couple of bucks for coffee uh, because I'm going to make you laugh world of the Ari Shafirs and Mark Normans and, and Sam Morrills and all these other folks who are doing that kind of thing. And there's extremely funny stuff on all of these podcasts that will absolutely, if anyone listened to like three episodes, they'd find something worth canceling. I think it goes back to what we're talking about, this decline of the common culture. And we're really seeing the end of the dominance of the kind of Lorne Michaels SNL yep. empire. Because I did actually, this might, this might come as a surprise to you. I was in sketch comedy uh, in, when I went to Yale. And, which, um, <laughs> that's a joke, isn't it? <laughs> uh, and so I knew, so I know a lot of. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't pursue it professionally, but Yale actually had a pretty burgeoning comedy scene. Not as, not as important or as uh, Chicago. As, well, I would say Harvard because yeah. the whole yeah. Harvard Lampoon. Uh, Har- which was a feeder. Yeah, those people are unfunny. Well, it's a feeder. No, no, no. It is, Harvard it Lampoon. Is, it is a feeder. Conan yeah. O'Brien. Harvard Lampoon, and you had the, the Yale thing that kills a whale. Conan, uh, was, Conan uh, O'Brien. Totally original. Conan yeah. O'Brien yeah. and all the writers Conan, for their All the writers yeah. for the late night shows in The Simpsons, they all came from Harvard. Yes. Yale was actually pretty good as well. But it, it used to be, 15 years ago, if you were a budding comedian, you'd go to New York, you'd do the stand-up thing, and you'd really want to get on SNL. And that goes back to the 70s when the show started. Look at all the people that Lorne Michaels oh has gosh. minted as comedians. They all, so many of them came through SNL. So many of them that we forget, like Robert Downey Jr. was on yeah, there you SNL. Go, right? so, <laughs> and that's no longer the case. What? I tuned into SNL. I, I tuned into SNL last week. I didn't recognize, with the exception of Kate McKinnon, who's, who's now leaving. Yeah. I didn't know any of the comedians on the show. I didn't laugh at a single joke on the show. How many jokes were there even? And it's just—it's remarkable. Uh, I used to love SNL. I, I mean, someone uh, people say that that SNL, your love for it is sort of generational. Everyone thinks that the SNL that they grew up with was the best. Yeah. I actually think that the SNL cast that I grew up with: what Will Ferrell, Will yeah. Ferrell, yeah. Sherry O'Terry, yeah. Molly Shannon, yep. that generation. I think that was the best SNL grouping. Bill Hader, yep. Kristen Wiig, yeah. that sort of late '90s, early Norm Macdonald. I remember. You know, watching Weekend Update during the OJ trials when I was in high school, right? Most people, I think they start watching SNL when they're in high school. Yeah. To me, it was that sort of, that era, like late 90s or like late, 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 late 90s, early 2000s when I was in high school. That was the best. Look, it's, I it's mean, not, no one can say that. I, mean, I will never, good. I will never forget. What's your favorite Cherry O'Terry project that she's done recently? Well, not, she hasn't been as successful as Molly Shannon's around, though. Molly Shannon's still kicking. Yeah. She's great. 
Um, the only uh, reason we know she's around is because she showed up at the end of Norm's special. No, she's in White Lotus. Um, she's the, in what? Uh, no, no. She's White Lotus. White Lotus. She, has her, she has her own show. What is White Lotus? Yeah. Oh, my God. So, um, yeah, you're an HBO. But, but, I have HBO. <laughs> I just don't watch bullshit. Is it funny? How is she? I will never forget. Uh, Daryl Hammond came to my college when I was uh, when I was in college and, and did did stand up. I will never forget the Farrell Hammond Bush Gore yes. debates. It's some Two of the, of the funniest. Daryl Hammond, funniest. one of the best, the best impersonator of, yes. of all time. And probably. by the way, extremely sad story. Like uh, as if there's there's a Netflix know, documentary about him. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know he cut him. He was a cutter. Yeah. And he cut himself like on his arm right before he did that sketch. Wow! Wow! Uh, and uh, and it's one of these things where like, wow, that's that's horrible. But the, but the performance that he gives as Gore in that debate is amazing. Well, his Bill Clinton was the best. No one's done a better Bill oh, Clinton yeah. than oh, Daryl yeah. uh, He did a good Trump. Too. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Was yeah. Trump? Oh, all right, but I'm sorry. Uh, he's a male cutter. Yeah. Yeah. Apparently, well, so he was supposedly and frustrated that, that, that he didn't get that's off not to a do bit? Trump. Yeah. By SNL. Oh. And was really put That's up not by a 2016, yeah. which is around when he left. Interesting. And then came back to be the announcer. But the, 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 you know, in the audience tonight is Etta Munson. <laughs> she, she, yeah. has, she, she has, uh, she has, you know, three forms of cancer, you know, a rare form of cystic can- uh, acne. She has to choose between buying groceries and taking care of her Lyme disease. <laughs> under, under my plan, her, her prescription drugs would be paid for. Under my opponent's plan, her house would be burned to the ground. <laughs> as, uh, as you brought up, Colleges, I feel like that's a relevant uh, kind of line of thought. I think well, a number of comedians in the last five, yeah. ten years have yeah. said we will not tell yeah. them anymore. Yeah. Used to My, be huge. Uh, Michael well, Moynihan Chris at Rock. Vice has done a whole yeah. document, I yeah. mean, uh, segment on that, yeah. which is astounding. Yeah. If you haven't seen it, but, yeah. I, compa- I compound that trend with I gather when you go to a number of shows in New York, you're asked to stick yeah. a cell phone in like yeah. a, a Ziploc Zip wallet so yeah. you can't touch it and like come back the uh, film people. What, what do you think that says about? The culture is it, an, is it an overreaction or is it is it entirely warranted? I think I think what it says is some people suck, <laughs> but but I also think that it says that we we have a coddled group of youngsters who like to seek affirmation uh, and find it via victimhood and complaint when they should instead be made mocked and bullied and i i really i really believe that the degradation of bullying in society bring back led, bullying yes has led it, make bullying great again uh as someone who was bullied quite a bit i i will say that like it it does there is something to saying that like it toughens you up and, yeah. it, and it makes you less likely to whine uh when you're confronted with something i used to use jokes you. to get out of bullying yeah no, it's it's very good. It's, it's going to be funnier it, and yeah. smarter than the past two. Yeah, kind of yeah exactly, exactly. Yeah. It infuriates them. What uh, was the joke that would uh, get the bullies to uh, step off your back? I can't remember. Like you're asking me to like usually. In, usually, <laughs> the best the best ones are about their moms. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. That'll get them. So. I told a few racist ones that when they attacked the Indian yeah, they kid, did. They date terribly. This is the 90s. They date terribly now. So. <laughs> just to circle back to to Mar for a second, I one thing I am curious about, and just in terms of your experience with him, is where does he think this is going? Where is it going? I didn't ask him that specifically. 
I don't know the answer to that. I'm sorry. I, I'm just okay. I'm, because because from my perspective, you know, once Bill Maher like eventually decides to retire, right. like exit the stage or you know move into some kind of like I'm making documentaries mm. or something like that now. Replacing him is actually a problem. Well, I'm not so sure. I think there are a lot. Well, look, it's he's not been, like he's Shane Gillis some, is going to slide. Maybe not him, but there could be about. someone else who emerges, uh, who emerges out of nowhere, who we haven't seen before. I think. All right, I'll do it. Fine. As, <laughs> as I mean, say, Schultz this, could kind of do it. As you say, the success of his show and the enduring popularity of it and his cultural relevance as sort of a kind of truth teller, mm-hmm. I think does indicate that there's a hunger for this. And it's like across the culture. In yeah. journalism, look at the rise of Substack. Look at the rise of podcasting. People are bored with the kind of mainstream narratives yeah. and voices because it's been such a constricted space over the past couple of years because, because of political correctness, wokeness, whatever you want to call it. It's not like the public hunger for interesting voices and the kind of comedy that we all enjoyed growing up. It's not like that, like the audience has disappeared isn't for that. It, isn't it, it, it so it's weird? There. Isn't it so weird that cable news is like people, people can't pay attention for more than two minutes and then we have three hour long Rogan podcasts. <laughs> right, but the way you know this is it's the it's the rotten tomatoes, the difference between the critics and the audience. Yeah. And you see that on the Chappelle special. It's like twenty percent critics yeah. appro- you know approved it and he gets like a ninety eight percent fresh rating from yeah. the audience. And there are dozens of examples. Films I can point to like Screw this. the gatekeepers. Comedy, right? So yeah. so the the gatekeepers are losing their credibility across the board. And it's no different in entertainment. I think of Rogan but, but podcast the podcast is against attention. I think that Rogan is a bit like, uh, you know, Billy, obviously a huge baseball fan. I'm, I watch cricket when I'm back home. And I basically got into it as a 19-year-old because you kind of just like... Was that a sport? It's, apparently, yeah. <laughs> it's cerebral. It's cerebral. It just washes over you and it takes hours. And I feel like that's, in some respects, how people respond to Rogan. Like, eventually, mm. they like zone in and out while they're watching it. Mm. Well, I mean, one of the things that is interesting to me, just as a, as a, a dynamic here that I think we have to appreciate is the the funding mechanisms are becoming very different for a lot of these folks you know in person performances and and direct kind of fan fan based funding mm-hmm. versus i need to get the hbo special yeah i need to go through the gatekeepers in order to have this approval and then i get get to get up on stage you know, and instead it's like people have figured out how to, I mean, Gillis has one special, it's on YouTube, it's filmed in Austin, it's Genius. you know, he did two nights to do it and it's like, I mean, it's, it's great and it's got, you know, millions of views, but it's also like th- that guy doesn't need the HBO special at a certain point. Mm. He's making enough money just be, I mean, he's touring in Australia and he's touring in Europe, uh, you know, this month and that kind of thing. So, well, I mean, the, the Gillis the Gillis phenomenon, if you will, you know, he talks about he was doing hilarious stuff in Philadelphia with his friends. That entire Philly comic scene. Yeah. Uh, you have a thesis on this, that I, Philly is going to save comedy. Well, no, no, no. That, that Philly is the, the last vestige of comedy. You got guys like Shane Butterly, Mike Rainey. These guys are absolutely hilarious. Here's the problem. I mean, you got Pope. These guys had their Comedy Central pilot mm-hmm. phase of their careers along with Gillis. He cameoed on it. And they were passed over for for Broad City. Mm-hmm. Obviously, and I, Denny 
politics. They, you know, if you're just looking at the comedy of these two shows but side that's, by that's side, a smart business decision is to take Broad City, right? Why? Because it was phenomenally popular, successful. They oh, got oh. did like four series run out. Yeah, uh, Huffington Post story. loved it, but 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 this is the thing about uh, <laughs> Matt apparently loved it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, but 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 apparently, but, but apparently, with <laughs> I have a bigger question, which is uh, why you give Nathan Fielder twenty million dollars? <laughs> Do you not like the rehearsal? Okay. Yeah, it's, oh, okay. it's incredible. I it's, um, it's no, no, but it's but this brand, absolutely disturbing. Yes. and I couldn't not watch it. Yeah. There you go. There you go. <laughs> Best critique of child labor laws in the land. Oh my god! Coke brothers have been trying to bring back child labor I'm for decades, like and Nate right? Fielder is the one who does it. It is. It is. Uh, you have to watch it. It's very disturbing. But, I can't do it justice. So. Oh, so, oh, so. Uh, just to prove to you, look as soon as, as, soon as they climb through the window to swap out the to kids. swap out the babies. I was, I was like, oh my god! We're, we're <laughs> trade them out every few hours. She's like forty-seven. Looks great. That's what happens when you don't have a bunch of kids. But uh, but anyway, this the gatekeeping is going to people have to eat. And Gillis Gillis tried to make it in Philly with the funniest people in comedy in the early aughts, and. He didn't make it until his agent finally convinced him, ditch your friends, go to New York. Yeah. You had to go to New York to even get the SNL audition. This is one of those things where it doesn't matter how original a voice may be. If your only hope of feeding a family with this thing is building your own crowdfunding mm-hmm. enterprise or suppressing your voice to the taste of HBO executives and Comedy Central executives, you're going to suppress your voice. Yeah. Um, uh, that this is uh I have to ask you as the a, reality as it. a sketch comedy expert. Uh, oh yeah. Since you've yeah, as a, veteran. Now, as a veteran. What will happen? There have been rumors of this now for like a year, more than a year in fact. There's a there are rumors that SNL is too expensive and not popular enough. Huh. And that they're basically waiting for Lauren to retire wow. to like get rid of it. Yeah. Now, I don't know how serious that is. I think, you know, as you know, my wife interned for Lauren back in the day, mm. but she gives it a little more seriousness and credibility now mm. than maybe back, you know, in, in prior uh, iterations. And it does seem like its cultural cachet has diminished totally. to a point where it might be vulnerable to that because yeah. it's an expensive production, you know. And mm-hmm. if SNL goes away, what does that do to the world of comedy? That's the thing. I don't think it'll be that big of a deal at this point because it's that, lost its that, relevance. Isn't that an indictment itself? You know I mean? Yeah, it's yeah. lost its relevance. You don't need to. What is Bobby Moynihan going to do now? <laughs> How did he blackmail Bobby Moynihan? <laughs> he's going to be the last one. Years ago, he's on. Uh, what happens? No, it doesn't on, matter. How do you stay on, on so long? I, I can ask that question. He's on the mayor on that NBC show with Ted Danson. Yes. That's what he's doing uh, right uh, now. Uh, it's, called, it's called The Meh? I think it's called The, the Meh. Oh, The Meh. M-A-Y-O-R oh. or oh, M-A-R-E? I thought it was The Meh. Because that would be too on the nose <laughs> in Moynihan's career. I think, I think you guys, by which I mean the people in this room and Americans generally, <laughs> uh, you know, you've, you, SNL's on a pedestal because it's been like the only sketch show since yes. 1975. Yes. And I come from a country where basically people come out with a different one every six years or so since the advent of you know desperate appetite for content and the streaming walls and that kind of stuff good other good sketch shows have emerged i think i think you should leave 
uh, by Tim Robinson on Netflix yes. is funnier than SNL. Has oh, been it's it's absolutely hilarious. So like that that's the that com- the the comedy can survive at, on significantly less of a budget than like paying all of these guys ludicrous salaries. I think the people who've just left in the most recent you know, at the end of the most recent season. They paid him. How much sure. are they? $20 million. Most of the most of the cast in SNL's not paid that much. It's yeah. the stars who are paid. Yeah, that's not okay. that's not a lot yeah, of money. Yeah. For a television person on television? Sure. Yeah. I mean it's but like, but my point is, wait a second. Would, How much are they paying you at the Spectator? <laughs> <laughs> what? All of you, you are make, just talking about 130k? Like it's nothing. Ske- Monty Python not for was a made by BBC on not very much money. Yeah. For 13 episode seasons, yeah, sure. and like it shows. But like, if you're funny, it doesn't matter. Yeah. And I feel like with SNL, that's you know, it's it's. What if you guys? Maybe it's starting to curdle a bit, where they're, they're realizing yeah. like this is, this doesn't happen. No, I agree. I we agree. can't make this work on pe- on Peacock, our streaming app, which yeah. we care about now. So. And, and at a certain level, you're just sort of saying like the the degradation here. I mean, you when you talk about sort of the golden era for you, mm. you're talking about Bill Hader, but you're also talking about like John Mulaney writing for Bill Hader. Sure. Yeah. You're talking about yeah. sort of quality that comes from the content creation perspective mm. and flows through the star. And, you know, I mean, has there been anything in the last few years from SNL as iconic as Stefan? No. no. <laughs> please, don't, please, don't, please don't destroy is really funny, but you kind of ask, could, could you do that anyway? Yeah. Do you need to do that on Saturday yeah. night? Yeah. I mean, like, obviously it ends up being a setting more than yeah. else. The quality so, of writing is that. So, so you raise an interesting question, which is uh, one of the funny things that the aughts did was it gave rise to the importance of the writer. You know, when we look back at 90s Chris Rock, Adam Sandler, that era, we don't know the names of the writers Mm -hmm. unless Norm tells us them. Um, We don't know about Jim Downey. Uh, Jim Downey was SNL's best writer. uh, Triumph the Insult Comic Dog. I thought it was Robert Smigel. Yeah. What was Robert uh, Smigel? Smigel. Not Smeagol. I said that to his producers when capital they tried to uh, chase me away. <laughs> no, but, but Jim Downey, Jim Downey was the uh, administrator of the trivia scene in Billy Madison. Yes, that's primarily um, what people know him from. Yeah, that, that's what you know him from. But he also wrote, you know, Pepper Guy and all these other brilliant things. You would have to be a comedy diehard to know who the writers were in the 90s. Yeah. And one of the nice things and the democratizing things about SNL is in the internet era is the writers have actually yeah. come to the forefront. You know, mm-hmm. that you got Tina Fey, you got Seth Meyers before he sucked, you got Tina Fey before he sucked. Colin Jost and Michael Chase were uh, both writers before they were. Oh, yeah, yeah. but they sucked uh, at the time. <laughs> they were writers uh, and when they. Uh, Showed up. No, you can tell that you can but, tell that Michael Shea is actually a good writer based only on the fact of the only on the dynamic that they do where they write jokes for each other mm. because his jokes that he writes for Colin yeah. are actually hilarious. Right, <laughs> well, Woody Allen is innocent, <laughs> <laughs> and also Woody Allen is innocent. Yeah, yeah. Very much, very much a Norm Macdonald joke, but but. He, this is my thing is those are the bit players who don't get paid very much to be on SNL. Those are the guys who are, are going to get cut from Netflix. And Netflix is eventually just going to be we paid so much for the star, we can't afford the writer anymore. And once a performer is robbed of his writing team, 
that's when you're going to start finding out that these performers aren't as funny as you I, think they are. I just look. and and so th- this is my question to you guys is one of the nice things, one of the backstops in comedy has been you could afford a writing staff to write funny jokes for stars. And if we lose that part, which you obviously lose in the YouTube funded model, how quickly until we well, start I, losing I think the, the bigger, writers? I think the bigger problem you run into is what happens when the comedy room uh, is a bunch of white and Jewish guys. And you're like, we have to diversify this crap, you know, in order, and it's like, I mean, no, the, the metric of success is funny. And I think the problem is that we now live in this environment where they have all these other corporate metrics of success that are not designed around funny. I mean, one thing that's true there was of a, Mar- there, there was a piece on Hannah Gadsby in New York Magazine. I shit you not, the headline was, how funny does comedy have to be? Oh, my gosh. So, it's like, <laughs> between, so, so all, all, all right, all right, better question. Shifting now. What is worse, the all-female... Infantry or the all-female comedy <laughs> What What will bring about the end of our republic? Well, look, I learned from the New York <laughs> Times. The all, the all I learned from the New York 500. Times this weekend that, um, that maternal instinct was a myth invented by men. So uh, In the 19th century. Yes, yes, <laughs> should, yeah. we, uh, should we do jokes? Yeah, I think we should. Uh, I think it's a good, a good yeah, point uh, to Well, I thought off. Ben did a good one just now. <laughs> oh, wait, that was a real New York Times? <laughs> yes. Oh. You didn't know that? No, no, of course no. I, I, I uh, <laughs> okay, yeah, just yeah. to uh, just to conclude, just going to ask each of our guests to tell just like their favorite joke go to, which they can tell on this podcast. I mean, so just I mean, don't tell. Oh, which you can tell on the podcast. Yeah. Well, that's different. <laughs> We're allowed to curse yeah, uh, within reason. Yeah, excellent. Well, mine's short, and it comes from the great Rodney Dangerfield. Uh, I visited my psychiatrist, and he told me I was crazy, and I asked him for a second opinion. And he said, okay, you're ugly, too. <laughs> Thank you, Jamie. I'll t- I'll t- t- one is um, a joke that, uh, that Norm told to Jerry Seinfeld, which you'll remember, um, which is, uh, he said it's a, it's, a, it's a Jew joke. Oh. So, it, uh, but, but, so it doesn't really work if it's coming from, from Norm or from me. But he says, uh, two Christian businessmen uh, run into each other on the, on the corner of the street. <laughs> And one of them says to the other, uh, how's business? And he says, great. <laughs> I, and I, too, will go Norm MacDonald in honor of the medium. And Norm, as good as he was at talk shows on late night, was even better at radio. So he did this whole bit where he... Practice his ventriloquism act, but the problem was that his ventriloquist dummy was a virulent anti-Semite. <laughs> <laughs> and Norm got a lot of blowback for his virulently Holocaust-denying anti-Semite ventriloquist dummy, who famously said he didn't celebrate Christmas, because why would he celebrate a holiday? in which a bunch of New York diamond sellers murdered our Lord and Savior. And after telling this joke on the radio, one of Norm's Jewish friends called him up and said, Norm, that that dummy is a waste of wood, and you should burn him. And Norm said, 
I don't think two wrongs make a right. <laughs> Mine is so much nicer. Yeah. Uh, well, I'll tell an anti-Irish joke because I figure that's appropriate. Yeah. I am. I am. An, I am an Irishman. As is. As is. Three Irishmen are rooting around in a graveyard on the outskirts of uh, of Belfast, and they're looking to see if they can find the oldest person to live to live there. And the first Irishman looks around and says. Look at this fella. Fenton O'Leary, right? Lived to be 97 years old. Isn't that incredible? Second Irishman goes, that's nothing. That's nothing. I got a fella here. Martin O'Darity, right? Says that he lived to be 103 years old. Over by the uh, edge of the graveyard. Third Irishman goes, that is nothing. That is nothing. I got a guy here. Lived to be 200. They're like, 200? What's his name? And the third man goes, Miles from Dublin. <laughs> <laughs> All right, it's, it's, it's no fun. You didn't tell us that you were good at impressions. <laughs> I've got the passport. Uh, thank you very much to Van Dominic, to James Kirchick, to Billy McMorris. You can subscribe to The Spectator online at spectatorworld.com forward slash subscribe to receive our forthcoming edition. And you can enjoy this one on our website as well. <laughs>